Continuing our study of the 12 apostles, we're down to number 11. The apostle uh, Simon the Zealot um, is the study for today. And um, you've heard of William Wallace. He was a Scotsman who um, defied the English and dared to fight for the freedom of Scotland at all costs and was a pest of a fellow within his, with his constant resistance, um, driven by his hatred of the oppressors. Uh, the movie Braveheart was uh, made. Um, such was Simon the Zealot. In his former life prior to the coming, he believed in Jesus uh, as he hated the, and resisted all foreign dominion over Israel. He was a zealot. We're going to find out what that means. He's the 11th apostle according to the chronological order in Matthew chapter 10, verse 2 through 4. And that's the list we've been following. There's four of them. There is no braver men or women than those who lay down their lives for their country and freedom, um, be it in war or underground resistance. You're fighting for your nation. Nations are the identity, not race, not color. Nations. Nations have boundaries, just like you have a door on your car, a door on your front house, everything else. You've got a whole group coming up from South America through Mexico. Listen, if I let you come in my house to rob, to jump the fence and rob my back neighbor, I'm responsible. Okay? Simple. Don't get confused about the, uh, the lies and the deception and the emotional issues. Stick to the facts. But in spite of all this, only the b- bravery that comes from trusting Christ is the most excellent one. Enough sufficient to be brave enough to minister and preach the gospel, not only abandoning the love of all, but even ending up loving those who hate you. You see, no philosophy can do that. Only Christianity can. The bottom line, he changes your heart. God's not into changing society per se because he doesn't force that. He's into changing one heart at a time. The church is not going to be big. They ask Jesus, many to be saved, few. Get that, underline it, put it on your refrigerator, tattoo it on your forehead, few, all right? And so we want to look at Simon. And um, we want to examine through three lenses that will lend us uh, some very uh, profitable uh, knowledge regarding Christ. First, we want to look at the man Simon the Zealot. Second of all, the major parties of Simon the Zealot's day. And thirdly, we'll end up with the most important decision Simon the Zealot ever made. We begin with the man, <clears throat> Simon the Zealot. Simon was one of the 12 apostles that we've mentioned. He is the 11th in the list of Matthew. And uh, he was um, chosen after an entire night in prayer. Luke uh, 6, 12 is that, just like the others. So Jesus didn't just flippantly pick one. This is Jesus, depending on the Father, to show us that we have to do the same thing. We cannot do things on our own. He is the third group of four, the least intimate of the three as we've seen. He is the one who we know uh, the least about, even less than Judas, Labius, Thaddeus that we studied last time. He is next to Judas Iscariot in Matthew and Mark's listing of the twelve. He is the tenth in Luke and an act between James, the son of Alphaeus, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas, Labius, Thaddeus. He is never mentioned in the New Testament except for 
the list that we find in Matthew 10:4, Mark 3:18, Luke 6:15, and Acts 1:13. Those are the four listings. Now, Simon, as you know, is a very common name, <clears throat> as many of the names that we study. Um, his name means heard, has to do with hearing. The name originated from the Hebrew name Simeon or Shimeon from the Hebrew. Um, Simeon was the uh, second son of Jacob by his wife Leah, progenitor of the tribe of Simeon. Twelve sons, twelve tribes. Simeon was his proper name. His name must not be confused, though, with um, other men whose name are Simon in the scriptures. Uh, Simon Peter uh, was one of the apostles distinct from him. Simon, the father of Judas, also who betrayed Jesus in John 7, 671 and 13.2, tell us the distinction. Simon Magus, the Samaritan wizard, also is distinct from uh, Simon the Zealot that we're studying. Simon the Tanner, Acts 10. Simon the Pharisee, Luke 7. Simon of Cyrene, who carried the cross of Christ in Matthew 27, 32. And Simon the Leopard in Matthew 26, 6 through 13. So whenever you look at a name, you want to look at the context and the genealogy that it's placed in or the identification, be it family or location, and it'll distinguish between them. Now, Simon is identified as well as disguised from all others by the word zealot. Matthew and Mark call him Simon the Canaanite in Matthew 10.4 and in Mark 3.18. The word Canaanite, as you know, um, would appear to be identifying Simon as a descendant of, um, the, of Canaan, but this cannot be so. For all the 12 disciples and apostles were Jewish. The word is a translation, in fact, a transliteration of the Syriac word kenik. The Aramaic word is not from Cana or Canaan, but rather indicates jealous, zealous, Enthusiast. So the root base is what it what it indicates what it is. So there is no evidence that Simon was from Cana of Galilee or a Canaanite. He was Jewish. So the root base gives us the indication that it means zealous, jealous, or enthusiastic or enthusiast. That's the root of it. And so the word describes him as a man of zeal and jealous character. We're going to say, well, that's not good. Well, we're going to see how that is affiliated. Um, Luke calls him, again, Simon the Zealot in Luke 6.15, and then, of course, Acts 1.13. Now, Luke specifically and clearly tells us the nature of um, Simon the Zealot um, and his jealousy. The word zealot identifies Simon as with a group of men. These men were those who, in uh, imitation of Phineas, 
that slew Zimri and Kobe in the Old Testament for their act of fornication right before Moses. Um, likewise, when they found any person in the act of adultery, idolatry, blasphemy, or theft, would immediately kill them without any more ado. This they did from a um, zeal for the honor and glory of God, nor were they accountable to any court above them. Such is the action that was highly embraced by the Jewish community and um, applauded, if you will, under the um, uh, specious name of zealots. So that's who they were. This is his B.C. days. You had B.C. days, okay? This is before Christ. Keep that in mind. Now, it's believed that they grew out of the Maccabean period, zealous for God and full obedience to the word of God. You know, the Maccabean period is between the 400 years of silence, uh, Malachi and Matthew. The last 200 is a Maccabean revolt with the temple and its purification from being polluted by Antiochus Epiphany. And, um, and they grew into a political party that soared to oppose and to thwart the power that came against the Jewish state in any shape or form. Simon the Seller was a committed terrorist, an assassin, if you will, who had vowed um, to the death to oppose Rome in every way, by every means, and every opportunity. Um, Simon must have eyed Matthew more than once. Matthew was a tax collector, a Jew from his own people. So I'm sure that at times Simon looked at Matthew and Matthew looked at him. And, but see, only God can put two people together that, that, that hate each other and put them side by side. Okay? Only God, because God changes the heart. We think we're so smart with our philosophies, our education, and people say, well, we need more education. Listen, it only makes you a smarter sinner. It's all education does. Makes you a smarter sinner. All right? You need a heart transplant. Not a brainwashing. You need a heart transplant. That's what you need. So I'm sure that it must have been interesting. Um, and, and not that it didn't happen after being a Christian. Just like you, now that you're a Christian, there are certain things that would come into your mind or things that would pull, and all of a sudden you go, Lord, I just thank you that you've given me grace. And Lord, thank you for the new nature. You've got to reckon that old man daily. I wish to God he'd dead completely when I was born again. But let me tell you, old Xavier, it's been 45 years, that sucker's still alive. All right? I have to reckon him dead every day. Simon is listed before Judas Iscariot twice, Matthew 10, 4, and Mark 3, 18. They probably went out together as Jesus sent them out two by two as we have this listing. They were both in the same political uh, bend, wanting to see the kingdom established, but from two different perspectives. They each made a decision, one to depend on Jesus, the other on himself and the world's and its means and its methods to complete different decisions. Um, there were two prodigal sons, as you know, in the home of the father. The one who had lived a debauched life repented. The one who lived a good life 
didn't think he needed to. One simple decision made all the difference in the world. And by the way, the, the prodigal son, the parable there is of two lost sons, not one. And usually every pastor teaches it wrong as well as Christians. They usually teach it as, well, you know, that's the prodigal son. My son is prodigal. He was born again. Then he walked back into the world. And he says, but he's going to come back. The scriptures guarantee that. And they do that based on a Calvinistic eternal security foundation. Completely wrong. First of all, the two sons were lost. Not one of them or the other one was prodigal. Prodigal just means wasteful living. It's his actions that are prodigal, not the man. Okay? They both were lost. One repented when he came back. The prodigal parable is the third climactic parable of three parables. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost two sons. The punchline is angels will rejoice over one sinner who repents. So every time a pastor or a Christian teaches that that's a prodigal son or daughter, it's going to come back no matter what, they get an F in the subject of the Bible. They flunked. Absolutely not. So they stick their theological presupposition of denomination or of the group they associate and they force it into the text, corrupting the text completely and making us say what it does not say. Wesley used to say that the text, um, the most obvious sense is the correct sense and to make us say anything else is nonsense. Okay, simple. Now, each of us as Christians have been sent out as the apostles. We are called ambassadors of Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, send out to be salt of the earth. You cannot force people to drink, but you can give them some salt. But it's up to them if they want to drink. Matthew 5.13. We are sent out as light to the world in Matthew 5.14. In other words, we're there to dispel the darkness, not because we're self-righteous, not because we think we're better, but because our life is going to do that automatically. I don't do certain things. I don't live a certain way. I don't talk a certain way because I have a new life. I'm a new heart with Christ Jesus. Not that I'm better. Okay? That's very important. Send out to persuade men, knowing the terror of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.11. Now, we persuade them, in other words, in the form that we plead that men would repent, but we can't force them or convince them to repent. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit, as you proclaim the word of God, that person makes a decision whether they agree with God that they're sinners and lost and need of salvation or not. One will accept, the other one will reject. What's the difference? The heart. Not the brains. You're not that smart. Okay? It's the heart. Evil. Desperately wicked. Each of us as Christians have an obligation to hear the call of our life and respond to it regardless of our past passion or pursuit. In other words, there is a new life. Our call is not like someone else. We're all called individually. The illustration of the body, hands, feet, everything else. We're individual. It's personal. Even as Paul was called of the Lord on the Damascus Road in Acts 9, what would you have me to do, Lord? We don't compare ourselves among ourselves as we be unwise. Our call will be in view of God's enabling and the gifts, as Romans 12, 3 through 5 tells us. Each of you have some gifts. They are to line up with the calling of God, the enabling of God. He never saves anybody without enabling with the gifts and the call. Not one. It would be a contradiction to God's nature. 
in the scriptures. Our call will bless and build up the body of Christ through our obedience in Ephesians 4, 6, the motive of his love. In other words, my gift and my calling is for your good. As I study, I learn, I grow, and I thank God for that, but my gift is primarily for you. I think of the past 45 years of all the teaching, how people have benefited, how they've grown. Now, there's no credit to me at all. It's just what God has called me to do, and God has done it, and I'm, I'm, I'm more shocked than anybody else, okay? No one's more shocked than me. Um, but it's primarily for you, and your gift is primarily for the rest of us, not for you. The world turns you inward. What about me? Let's not talk about you. We don't want to talk about you. If you're a Christian, God doesn't want to talk about you, okay? He's going to take care of you. He died for you. If that isn't enough, then you don't understand the gospel. Joy. Jesus first. Others second. You last. Can you handle that? Okay? That's how true joy comes. Not the reverse. Very, very important. Each of us as Christians have to have passionate zeal for God. And the things of God. This comes through studying, praying, spending time with God. The passion will be challenged in, in order to deceive us. Even as Paul says, from the simplicity of Christ, Satan deceived Eve. In Second Corinthians 11, 2-3. You can be on fire for the Lord, but if you get lukewarm and you start compromising, you start hanging out with the wrong people and you start doing the wrong things, pretty soon the fire starts going out, right? It's a choice we make. We have to be careful. The passion that is not cultivated through the word, prayer, and service will be seduced by the love of the world, even as Demas in Timothy 4.10. He loved this present world. And I've seen and known many people in the last 45 years that have committed themselves like that. People that were used tremendously by the Lord. And they're walking in the world today. Some were married, now they're divorced. Children have walked away. It's an individual choice, ladies and gentlemen. And so our passion needs to grow as we spend time with Jesus. As the deer pants after the water, but so pants my soul after you, O God. Daily, daily, Psalm 42, 1. Um, here we are at the end of the year again. You know, once October hits, the year's over. Forget it. Have you read through the Bible today? Where are you at? Five chapters a day, two days off. You've got the Bible lit once a year. Ten chapters is nothing. You know Spanish? Then read five in the morning in English, five in Spanish at night. You've got it twice. Simple. So the man, Simon the Zealot, was fighting the war. God was not behind. Well-intended, patriotic, but bad. Listen, you cannot make a Christian nation. God's not going to Christianize the whole world. The whole world wants to go to hell. Let me say it again. The whole world wants to go to hell, and it doesn't want you to bother them. But we do anyway. Because we have received the love of God. We know. We know what it is to be saved. We know what it is to have the peace of God. We know what it is to know that all of our sins have been buried in the deepest ocean. And I want that for every sinner. That's God's love, ladies and gentlemen. Not our own. Don't be putting your chest up. It's not your own. It's the Lord as you yield to him completely. Secondly, the major parties 
in Simon the Seller's day. Um, he was identified with an extreme political party, <clears throat> as we've seen, but there were many other parties uh, desiring to establish uh, their own position and power in that day. There were the Pharisees that we've covered and are recorded in Scripture. The Pharisees seem to, um, the root word means to be separate, the separated ones. It appears over 100 times in the New Testament, and they were the separate ones. Um, they were caught up with ritual, ceremony, and all the pompous outward show of things, how they dressed, what they did, everything like that. Um, they were very not very numerous um, among the Jews, but there were uh, never more than 6,000 uh, at any one time. So compared to the whole um, uh, population, that wasn't big. And they, in their origin, were of a pure and a holy people had become separatists uh, from the pollution of of the Jewish uh, national life that took them into captivity. Remember, the nation went into captivity to Babylon because they didn't keep God's word. Um, and so that's their origin. And so out of the Babylonian captivity they came out of and they they swore they would never go back in captivity because they did not keep God's word. So the original intent and the founding was was commendable and there was nothing wrong with it. Um, But they, in process of time, like all religious sects or parties, degenerated. They lost the spirit of their institution. They ceased to be faithful to the first principles of their intent and um, they became just um, full of form, but not godly. And this happens all the time. I don't care whether it's marriage. I don't care whether it's a university. I don't care what it is. Everything starts well, and it decays. The minute you drive a new nail into a new house, it's already dying. It's dying. It's getting rusted. Aromocrisis. Second law of thermodynamics. Whew. Dying. Now... They built a fence around the law. They knew they went to captivity, so they took all their traditions, their interpretations, the Talmud, the uh, Mishnah, and all these different things, and they said, you know, we're not going to go into captivity again, so the law is holy, just and good, so we're going to build a fence around the wall, uh, around the law with our, our interpretations, and, and all of a sudden they realized, well, if the fence, all our interpretations and traditions keep men from breaking the law, the fence must be holier than the law. So they began to teach their traditions, interpretations of a higher authority. Well, it's rational, it's logical, but it's stupid biblically. Okay? So be careful when you try to understand Scripture from a rational, logical perspective. Our, 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 our faith is, is logical, but it's not based on reason or logic alone. Be careful of that. And so Matthew 15, 9, Mark 7, 7, they taught the traditions of their teachings as the commandments of God. They were full-blown hypocrites, for by the time Jesus came and arrived on the scene preaching in Judea, um, bearing witness, he declared that... uh, they were like uh, sepulchers and platters and cups, clean on the outside, but filthy, full of them and bones on the inside. Pretentious. Actors. The word hypocrite comes from the word actor, which you get the smile and the frown of Greek theater. There were also the Sadducees. The Sadducees, as you know, 
And they were the righteous, that's what it means. Um, the sect of the Sadducees were followers of Zadok, a disciple of Antigonus, Socrates, and they, they flourished about three centuries before Christ. The sect of Sadducees were the materialists in charge of the temple, as you know. Businessmen, sacrifices, the money changers, they were into the loot, okay? Some things have never changed. There are many ministries into the loot. There are pastors in for the loot. Um, you'll know by those who are begging constantly. They're in for the loot, okay? If God's in a work, God will provide. And if he doesn't provide, then shut the doors and go home. Simple. All right? I'm not speaking against taking an offering on Sunday. I'm not speaking about teaching what God says about giving. I'm against begging, pressuring people, trying to promote yourself, trying to promote your ministry. Poor God, he's broke this summer. Could you help him out a bit? Really? Wow. They were the deists. Deist of the Jewish nation. They denied the existence of angels, spirits, and the resurrection. Matthew twenty-two, twenty-three. Now, you can call yourself a Christian. If you deny these three, you're not a Christian. You're a Christian. You have to believe all the doctrines of the Bible. People say, well, can I be a Christian if I don't believe the Trinity? No! You have to believe all the doctrines. Well, I don't think that's fair. Well, you can go to hell. You have the right to go to hell. You don't have to go to heaven. You make the choice to break God's heart. But he'll respect your ignorance and your stubbornness. He's not going to force you. Paul the Apostle, making his defense before the Sanhedrin, remember they were made of Sadducees and Pharisees. And he knew that because he was part of the Sanhedrin at one time. In Acts 23, 8. Uh, he says, for the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, so he's defending himself, and no angels or spirits, but the Pharisees confess both, and they start fighting among each other. <laughs> Here you are, people who believe in the spirit world, and angels and that, and these don't, and they're the, the Supreme Court of the Jewish nation. Not much different than our Congress and Senate, right? There, there's monuments all over Washington with scriptures all over them, in the Congress, on the doors. Everywhere. On our money. Our constitution all over. And they contradict everything. They're not American. Simple. Anti-American. Real simple, ladies and gentlemen. You say you're American, you have to buy the constitution. You can't deny the founding fathers. You have to destroy every, every monument in Washington. And that money in your pocket, throw it away. It says, in God we trust. You don't believe in it, right? And by the way, it's worthless. It's only a note. There's no gold behind our money. It's just paper. Wow. Well, let's move on. <laughs> they denied the oral law to be a revelation of God and deemed only the written law. All divine influence and inspiration was gone, so they didn't accept the prophets, stuff like that. Very selective. And there's Christians like that. They're selective. No, no, no. You got to buy the whole thing. Genesis to Revelation. Okay? You can't be selective. They were of the priestly line. Priestly line. Uh, John the Baptist um, 
called both the Pharisees and the Sadducees a brood of vipers, Matthew 3, 7. See, some of you guys think I'm bad. You get mad at me when I name names and everything like that, like Rick Warren and stuff like that. Um, it doesn't really bother me. Um, but if you think I'm bad, have you ever read John? How about the words of Jesus? I'm lightweight compared to these guys. Are you kidding me? Jesus cautioned his disciples about both parties. In Matthew 16, 12, he said, Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of leaven of bread, speaking to the disciples, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, corrupt doctrine. Leaven is sin. And there's much of that that goes on today. The greatest heresy being taught today is in the church, not outside the church. The Christian universities. Pull up APU. See what's going on there. You want to try Fuller Cemetery? Biola? A, a Tory would, would, would turn over his grave if he could go in that library. Probably wouldn't even find a copy of his book in there. Great theologian. What has happened to our institutions? Same thing as the secular institutions. Anti-God. Slowly but surely. Then there were the Essenes. They were the third sect during the days of Jesus and were from the time of Jonathan, the successor of Judas Maccabee, the last 200 years of the 400 years of silence, and they were ascetics and mystics for their means of holiness. And this is always a lie. People come about and they, you know, they dress a certain way and they tell you different things and mystical and everything. It doesn't hold any water. You gotta have revelation. You gotta point me in the scriptures. Okay? Emotions and feelings and googly gook don't mean anything. They're like warm, warm uh, gummy bears. They just stick to you, okay? They arose from the sunrise to recite prayers of the ancestors. They bathed in cold water. They didn't have two cloaks, two pairs of shoes, or whatever. They kind of took poverty as their pledge. They wore white garments. You see some of this in a lot of religious groups during the 70s. You had a lot of these guys walking around, their clothes begging money, and... You know, the Moonies and everything else. Um, they avoided oaths and they regarded them worse than perjury if you took an oath. So they have their own little codes, their own little standards, their own little mantra things. There were about four to 10,000 at one time. And um, they occupied the west shore of the Dead Sea by Qumran. Now, the Essenes are not um, named in Scripture, but they were there. Some of you went to Israel with us last year. We would then went down by the Qumran caves and we visited the institute there where uh, they would make scrolls and, 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 and pass them on and that. And um, they set up their own priests and rejected marriage, but adopted children. I found that quite interesting. You reject marriage, but you embrace children, adopt the children. Well, why would you do that? Interesting. That's going on today in many different levels. Christians will be... Dismissed from adopting, but a homosexual couple will be given the permit to adopt. Um, a Christian or conservative will put something on the website. They'll be dismissed. They'll be pulled out. But liberal progressives or homosexual will, and they will be embraced and even uh, promoted. Okay? Learn one thing, ladies and gentlemen. The world is not your friend. They hated Jesus first. They will hate you. What are we to do? How are we to respond? In God's love, preach the gospel to them. That's what you do. Nothing else. They said that a man joined to a woman was pampered by his affections, and so uh, he was no longer free but a slave. Josephus tells us they were uh, the strictest sect of the Jews. 
Um, then there's another group that is not mentioned in the New Testament, and they're called the Ibionites. So the Essenes and the Ibionites are not found, but they are in history. They assume their name from Matthew's gospel, the poor people, in Matthew 5.3. So they took that vow of poverty. They denied the supernatural birth of Christ. There you go. Basic tenet doctrine. If you say you're a Christian, you deny the uh, supernatural birth of Christ, you're not a Christian. You're phony. Simple. Um, Epiphanius, most informative on the Ebionites in history, or heresy number 29, he identifies them with the Essenes uh, because what they taught was so contrary to Scripture. They considered the body of Christ the revived one of Adam. See, you get a little weird, okay? And there are people that will come in and tell you, you know, you were a spirit that existed before and, and then God gave you a body. Shut up. I mean, if you can't find it in Scripture, put on your thinking cap, ladies and gentlemen. That's Mormon doctrine. Okay? They receive only the gospel of Matthew. They permitted marriage up to seven times. Ooh, that's convenient. Man, I got seven ladies. Woo! Let's go for it. The flesh caters the flesh, right? They had a low view of women, but they did permit you to marry seven. Crediting her with originating heathenism. Now, the Bible tells me it's the woman who brought the fall. But then God says, I hold the man responsible because he's the head of creation. So the Bible gives you the truth of what happened. But then the Bible tells you exactly how God runs his church and why he does it. Okay? So I agree with God. I don't change the word of God. And so these were three groups the four groups that were there, and plus the zealots. The zealots were a political terrorist group, as we said. One of the sects of the zealots was called the Sakari, indicating the sword of an assassin. A leader in the New Testament times named Judas of Galilee with various seditious acts to thwart the reign of Rome was killed by his, and his followers dispersed. This is recorded in the book of Acts, chapter 5, verse 37. But the zealous continued their holy war against Rome. This was their vow. They would not hesitate to murder a Roman. Or equally, or more so should I say, a Jew who was faithful to Rome. In 70 AD, Rome put a stop to it by destroying Jerusalem. Being tired of all these little terrorist campaigns. The ultimate one came in 132 to 35. But um, even there in the 70 um, it was just one thing after the other. Rome was constantly fighting seditious groups. Um, the zealots killed people in about 985 towns up in Galilee. It is thought that they derived their name from the dying charge of uh, Asmonean Matthias, uh, who then was one of the Maccabean period, the brothers, who, who said, Be ye zealous for the law and give your lives for the covenant of your fathers, First Maccabees 2.50. That's a noble statement. That's a, a, a very honorable thing to be patriotic. But again, 
it's not going to get you to heaven. Okay? So there's no contradiction between you serving your country and going to war and being a Christian. Okay? No contradiction. Because you are defending your nation where your family lives, your wife and your children, and those bad guys want to kill them. Self-defense is permitted in the Bible. Let me tell you, I'm walking out to the parking lot, someone assaults my wife, I'm going to hurt them. Then I'm going to pray for them. Okay? I'm going to hurt them first. Then I'm going to pray for them. How we understand? Okay? All right? Whatever they were first, it is certain that their um, late course was marked by uh, frightful excesses, as any other group. And they are charged with having been uh, the human instruments which really brought about the destruction of Jerusalem by Josephus in, in his book, Wars. Um, but we know that it was God because of their disobedience. So when man looks at something, they look at the sociological, psychological things and political things, and it, and it gives you the whys and the hows. When God reveals it, he says, because I judge them. The wrath of God is revealed from day to day against all ungodliness, ladies, gentlemen, even today. All right? So heavenly perspective is one. The earthly perspective is another one. If you try to have, hit heaven from earth, you miss it. If you're in heaven, you'll always hit earth. All right? That's what God did. Very, very important. A new leader after 70 AD arose named Eleazar. And he, along with his followers, used Masada as their fortress. Some of you have gone to Israel again. We've gone up to Masada. Uh, you've seen the movie Masada. Rather than allowing Rome to conquer them by their advice of Eliezer, the heads of families, they uh, decided to kill their families. And each one by one would uh, pull uh, little pottery things and like a lotto to the, with their names on it so they would kill the rest of them. And then the last one would take his own life. So when Rome came in, their, their, their victory was stolen. And the only ones that, were, that survived were two women and five children who had hidden and survived. Okay? It's interesting because um, um, years ago, we've been going to Israel since the late 70s. And uh, we've seen the progression of Israel um, in every way in technology and, and even the um, ability to stand against the whole world. But along with it comes a decay because more Jews come in from all over the world. And Israel has changed in many ways. But... The graduating ceremony of every um, soldier, Israeli soldier, was up in Masada. And, and, and the graduating, they had a motto. They said, no more or never another Masada. They got the Samson complex. We'll bring down the whole world with us. Now it's interesting. It's been years now. They don't do that anymore. Their attitude is changing. When the Antichrist comes... They will make a covenant with him. He will deceive them. Israel is safe. It's the safest place in the world today. Once the Antichrist come, they're dead. Two of three Jews will die at the hand of the Antichrist. Zechariah says that. Pretty heavy. Now you see why it's so important for you to know the word of God? They don't get moved by the newspaper or anything else. You know the end from the beginning. Catholic Church taught that after a thousand years, the Lord would return and set up the kingdom. And they set out 
with zeal and fervor to conquer the world by its monastic order and everything else. And of course, in a very dishonest way to enrich themselves, they confiscated properties and killed anybody who wouldn't bow to Rome. Uh, cruel, uh, incredible things that go on. Um, but after the 1,000 year, Jesus didn't return. She had to change her message, but certainly not her methods. <laughs> her message was changed. Now they're the vicar of Christ, they're a representative. Um, interesting. That's how you know it's a religion. It changes its doctrine. The Bible has never been recalled, never been rewritten. It's the same. It's sufficient for every generation. Um, there still are groups of Pharisees today that declare to be part of the church. They begin with good intentions, but they become self-righteous and critical. And so they find fault in everything. Now, let's understand clearly. God has called us to holiness. We're to honor the Lord in every way, run everything to the scriptures. But there are people who are just nitpicking on everything, and they find fault in everything, and they become legalistic. Now, be careful if you're standing for God, and you love the Lord, and you're teaching the Word of God, and then people call you self-righteous or legalist. Don't, don't be bothered by it, okay? Um, but if you are, then get the right attitude, you know, and get, get it right with God. But be careful of that today because a lot of people are zealous for God and, and the emergent church especially calls you self-righteous and critical and uncompassionate, unloving. That's not true. It's really a, criti uh, a criticism on them, their own criticism. Um, they have become actors, these individuals, um, loving ceremony, ritual, uh, being the biggest hypocrites because while they're doing all this, they're not living out the word of God. That was the crux of the, of the um, Pharisees. They said one thing and did another. And they, again, the merchant church uh, interprets the word subjectively. They do not believe you can learn any objective truth from the Bible. Pick up any other writers or authors. Um, I'm not, it's not what I'm saying. It's what they're saying. And um, they, they practice out of their own words and teach out of their own words that they have uh, beer bashes with their elders. The pastor crosses over the pulpit and stuff like that. So they become just like the world. And their rationale is we have to become like the people so the people can identify with us. Really? Well, Jesus went with the publicans and sinners, but he wasn't getting drunk and he wasn't trying to score on the ladies or anything. All right? Let's put it in context, ladies and gentlemen. These people are corrupt. They can call themselves Christians all they want. By what they teach and by what they deny, they are not. But the church of Laodicea, lukewarm. And Jesus says, ding, I'll spit you out. Incredible. So you run everything by the word of God. There are still Sadducees in the church also. Those who are the materialists. Everything they talk about is relationship to money. And they attribute that to the wisdom of God. The faith movement is a classic uh, example of this. Using the name of Christ to, to be healthy and wealthy. You're a divine right. You're a God's child, right? So you can nab it and grab it, confess it positively. If you don't, then it's your fault because you don't have enough faith. Really? Well, Paul tells Timothy, those who profess that godliness is gain, get away from them. The minute you're born again, you're financially ahead. I've told you that often, automatically. The first weekend, I was loaded. I didn't go out and buy a case of beer. I didn't go out and crash my car. I didn't get in a fight and had to go stitch my hand or my windshield or whatever. I had all kinds of money. I didn't buy smokes. Right away, you're ahead. 
And then here we are. What do I give to God? And we're pinching a penny so hard that you make Lincoln eyeballs pop out. Are you kidding me? Automatically being born again, you're a better steward. You're not going to buy things that you're not supposed to. You're not going to buy just on emotion. You're going to make better decisions. You're honoring God in every way, ladies and gentlemen. God's not interested in your money. God wants your heart. You care less about your money. There are the essence still in the Ebionites also in the church who are ascetics, mystics. They come and go. They'll tell you all kinds of stuff. Well, you know, the Bible says this, and you know, I experienced it, and, and I know it's true because I, I, I sense it in my heart. Your heart is rotten. I mean, in your heart. Extreme Pentecostal churches get into this, the holiness movement. You have to be careful. There's zealots in the church today. There are those of the dominion and kingdom theology. If I name some names right now, they're, they're number one on the, on the hit on radio. Okay? Kingdom theology, dominion theology. We're going to establish the kingdom. We're going to get Christians into politics and we're going to get... You're going to shut up. You're going to do nothing. The world's not getting better. It's getting worse. The Bible says Jesus will establish the kingdom. Lord, are there many to be saved? Few. Strive. Agonize to enter in. He didn't say slide in. Wow. They are the liberating theology groups also. They use race. Like the Sandinistas down in South America. Like Reverend Wright with Obama. I really call him Reverend Wrong. But um, nothing new. Liberating theology. You taint the gospel with your race, with your agenda. You twist it. You corrupt it. Political activists that have their hope in man, so they have demonstrations. We're going to go sit out. We're going to do this. I never read anything. Jesus had the disciples go do a march on Caesar Boulevard and, and Nero Avenue. They were light and salt. Now, am I speaking against voting? No, you vote. Am I speaking against writing to your congressman? No. Am I speaking against calling to them? No. Use the system and pray. Pray for your leaders. Pray. Bug them. Be there. And trust God. He's in control. He's not biting his nails. We're right on schedule. I don't like the schedule, but we're right on schedule. All right? Jesus has never been late. So the major parties of... Simon the Zealots, they all claim to be of God. How do you know which are? The Bible, the plumb line. Third and last, the most important decision Simon the Zealot made. Simon um, renounced all past affiliations that promised to bring about peace. Very important, very important. He gave up his commitment to bring about peace for Israel through his own means. He acknowledged the history of his people as rebellious, uh, a rebellious nation, and God punished them. They deserve what they got. He gave up his um, life of terrorism and assassinations in the name of God. A lot of people do a lot of things in the name of God, but it's abominable. He saw the futility of, of such an attempt. That's what the gospel does to you. But also, uh, Simon resigned himself to be the very, at the very least, uh, as zealous for Christ against sin as he was against his zeal against Rome. This is important. He used to resist every and any form power that came against Israel. So now he resisted the power of sin nature that came against the kingdom of God in his life. What were you into? 
alcohol, drugs, sex, money? Are you as zealous for Christ as you were for those things in the world? You better be. Now you hate sin because you know what it does. He used to knowingly and willingly risk and was ready to lose his life for his Jewishness. So now we are willing to lay down our lives to minister the gospel to those who hate us. Wow. A religious person will kill you. Christians will lay down their life and pray for those who are killing them. There's the difference, ladies and gentlemen. Simon also recognized that having come to Jesus, he did not need to search anywhere else. What a deception when people say, well, you know, I need, and, and, they go, and they get deceived and they get pulled away from Jesus. He had come to the rest of grace in Jesus in contrast to the work of the law. He had come to experience a complete removal of guilt and shame from all his past sins, his killing, his assassinations, everything. He had come to the promised Messiah, who was God himself. He had a message for people that could change their lives by God's grace and spirit, not by the sword. He knew where he would be eternally. Do you understand these things? Are these things real in your life? Again, I'm not speaking against patriotism and going to war if you need to as a nation, but you certainly don't think you're going to bring about the kingdom of God that way. Absolutely not. Remember, Jesus says, go sell the sword. And then he said, go sell something, go buy a sword. Jesus, Jesus gives you allowance to defend yourself. I don't want to hurt anybody, but you try to hurt me, we're going to have a problem. Okay? It's real simple. All right? I'm, I'm, I'm a servant, not a doormat. Very important. All right? The devout scientist, the name Sir Isaac Newton, should ring your, in your ears. I'm quoting him. I can take my telescope and look millions and millions of miles into space, but I can lay it aside and go into my room, shut the door, get down on my knees in earnest prayer, and see more of heaven and get closer to God than I can, assisted by all the telescopes and material agencies on earth. Wow. This man was a godly man. Great scientist. By the way, all the first scientists were Christian. And then with all the pressure, evolution, everything else, now there's still a lot of godly men, but they get marginalized, they get ostracized, they get marked. There are some individuals who, after coming to Christ, attempt to help out the Lord and his kingdom by trusting the arm of flesh. It'll never be. I have done absolutely nothing in this, min- in this ministry, this church. All I've done is just teach the word of God. I come in, I lock myself up, and I come out and I teach you. That's what I do. Okay? God does the rest. He raises people up. He gives the gifts. He puts it all together. He does it. Again, I'm, no one's more shocked than myself, ladies and gentlemen. And I, I wouldn't change anything. I wouldn't trust my flesh. It can do nothing. Nothing whatsoever. All past ideas and endeavors to do God's work and not in accord with the scripture must be abandoned. Absolutely. Paul said um, that he did all things in the past ignorantly and unbelief. First Timothy 1, 12 through 13. As he thought zealous for God, he killed Christians, he imprisoned Christians, he caused them to blaspheme ignorantly. All that is done and embraced for the kingdom must come from biblical philosophy of ministry in context, not corporate management principles as most of the emerging church teaches in Fuller Seminary and the rest of them. 
Incredible. Acts 13, 2. The Spirit says, Separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. If God calls you, he enables you, he sends you out, not the church. And if he does, the evidence when you go, God is in the ministry. God takes care of it. If you have to depend upon man, beg the man, plead with man, go home. You're not called. You're not sent by God. You're sent by man. Our zeal for Jesus must be based on our love for him, or else it will be based on temporary infatuations resulting from feelings, emotions, and newness. We are to strive to enter in the narrow gate, difficult the way and that leads to life, and there are few who find it, Matthew seven fourteen. Agonized to enter in. We are not to present our members any longer as weapons of unrighteousness to sin, but rather present ourselves to God as being alive from the dead and our members as weapons of righteousness, Romans 6, 13, by the Spirit of God, by the Word of God. We're to be filled with the power of God's might, the Holy Spirit, put on the entire armor, withstand spiritual enemy and finish the good warfare, the race, the good fight of faith, keeping the faith, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. 2 Timothy 4, 7. Paul says, I have finished my course with joy. He didn't say, well, great, I'm out of here. Wow. It is our decision based on the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the revelation of God's scripture that Jesus has removed all of my sins and buried in the deepest ocean. And he has made me a new creation. Psalm 103, 12 and 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Do you realize that? Do you know that? Do you preach that? Do you live that? It is the Spirit of God who dwells in us. And he yearns jealousy for the things of God, James 4 says. God knows he's the best thing for you. You're not the best thing for you. You're the worst thing for you. God is the best thing for you. And so the most important decision Simon the Zealot ever made was to accept Jesus and rest in the finished work of the kingdom. Man. Important lessons through these three lenses that we've seen Simon. The man Simon the Zealot was fighting war, a war that God was not behind. The major party of the Simon the Zealous, they all claim to be of God. The most important decision Simon the Zealous ever made was to accept Jesus and rest in the finished work of the kingdom. I think we can pick up some good stuff here for our lives. God's word, man. It'll, it'll tear you up for good, <laughs> not for evil. Father, we worship you. We thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. And thank you for your mercy over our life here as a church, Lord. We pray you deal with our hearts and those who are listening right now over the radio or the uh, internet, Lord, or those present here. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. If you don't know Jesus, he died for your sins. He rose from the dead. And he's willing to save you if you call upon his name. It's called repentance. A simple prayer of repentance is what he requires as you agree with him as to who you are, lost 
in need of salvation. This is a simple prayer of repentance, whether you're out in the radio world, internet, or here. This is your prayer to him, and he's going to save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.